Kim, have you ever had a paper that was accepted as is? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Never. Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast, everybody. This is Kim Skorupski. I'm the Associate Dean for Faculty Development in the School of Medicine at Johns Hopkins. And with me today is my buddy and colleague, Dr. David Usum. Hi, Dave. Hey, Kim. So Dave is our Associate Dean for Professional Development. He's an MD, MBA, and the Vice Chairman of Program Development in the, the Division of Neuroradiology, and used to be the Division Director of Neuroradiology, and is the author of the actual textbook on neuroradiology. And he's one of our most beloved and famous, I guess, instructors in faculty development. Well, since I came here, we've been giving this seminar called Get That Paper Out the Door, Pearls and Pitfalls for Publishing. And it's based on the concept of uh, WAGS, which you've heard me talk about on this podcast before. WAGS stands for Writing Accountability Groups. And when we do WAGS, we always survey participants. And we found over the years, now it's over seven years, that the three most common barriers for writing that people confess to, including me, are I have um, no time, no time to write, I have trouble starting, and I have trouble finishing. So when Dave and I and various other junior colleagues that we invite to join us give this presentation, get that paper out the door, we split our talk into three components. Uh, Somebody talks about how do you get over getting started if that's your barrier? Somebody else handles the time management, and I have no time, and I can't manage my time. I'm having trouble managing my time. And then someone does the getting problem, you know, trouble getting finished or finishing the job. And that's always Dave, and Dave does a great job. So Dr. Yusum is here today to share with you a couple gems from that session on getting the paper out the door, specifically if you are a perfectionist and you have trouble finishing. So Dave, I think you were going to talk about two of your um, more meaty um, components of your segment on publishable moments versus publishable units, and then overcoming that quest for perfection, right? So take it away. Thank you, Kim. And and I'm glad you made the analogy of, of having some gems, because one of the analogies that I make in my talk is about having this large, rough diamond that's like 20 carats big that just came out from the mining. And you're looking at that diamond and you're wondering, should I make a 12 carat huge diamond or should I make this 24 carat blob into 20, for example, uh, single carat diamonds for various rings? And I think that's sort of the analogy I make with regard to large projects with PIs on R01s. And that is that the PI may be thinking, I want that big, bulky, incredible manifesto paper that is going to be a 12-carat paper. And in the meantime, that same PI has about five different people working on the grant as you know, postdocs or research fellows or research associates, and each of them want a first-authored publication. And they're looking at it going, oh, my God, they're going to make, we're going to make a 12-carat diamond, and 
there's only going to be one first author. So my analogy with regard to that gems and, and making uh, publishable units is that as the, the PI is conceiving of that great master work that's you know 10 carats big, he's shaving or she is shaving off from that big bulky paper, uh, that big bulky rock, uh, smaller pieces of the rock. And the idea that I think I want to instill in people is whether you're the PI or whether you're the research fellow or postdoc or assistant professor or instructor on that same grant, is how can we create both small one-carat diamonds as well as maintaining that 12-carat masterwork? And that's what I mean by a publishable unit. When you have the, all this wonderful data that you're working with over the course of a grant or over the course of a long-term project, uh, there are times when you have a, a smaller project which can be spun off. So, for example, this is our inter-observer variability portion of the, of, the, of the overall project, or this is our pilot data of the project, or you know, this is our preliminary uh, report portion of the project without losing the large bulk, great, you know, opus that you still want to write at the end of the project. So the idea is, when do you have a publishable unit? When do you have enough data in an idea that has not been forthcoming previously, or even an idea that has been previously published but has not been verified or validated by other groups, uh, that you can knock off a, a, a single carat diamond out of that big 24-carat blob. So that's what I mean by a publishable unit. And the concept of a publishable unit is I have enough paper, uh, data and I have enough material here that I can write a paper from it. And that discussion about whether you are at a point of a publishable unit is the discussion that's done between mentors and mentees, between experienced people who know the literature and know whether this is uh, enough material, so to speak, to get published. That's not to say that it shouldn't still be a diamond, right? It should still be great data. You don't want cubic zirconium, you know, bad data, worthless material. You still want great diamond, great carbon material, even as you're shaving off pieces as you're making that grand opus. So that's the concept, Kim, of a publishable unit. Yeah, Dave, as you're- could, could you just like pause there for a second? Because I'm trying to imagine myself in the shoes of some listeners, particularly if they're junior faculty members. And Dave, you know that over the years in our junior faculty leadership program, in various groups when we've given this seminar, and, the, and you've talked about this concept, we inevitably have basic scientists in the room who will kind of, their, their nose is crunched up and they have the arms crossed and they're looking at us like, this is, you know, this is a tough road to hoe. That I have actually a, a PI who is insisting in my lab that she wants the magnum opus. And you're telling me I have to get um, promoted, and the way to get promoted is the currency of the trade, the coin of the realm is, is publications, but I'm up against a system where I've got that PI, the principal investigator in my lab, who's insisting on the big honk and the blue diamond, and she's content to wait around for five, seven, eight, ten years for that big paper, but I'm just starting my career out, and we are at loggerheads about this. So you've given some ideas about, you know, 
spinoffs or elements of the research methods or uh, feasibility or concept, how what advice would you give to the junior faculty members in broaching that conversation, either in, at the beginning of the whole project or midway when you're seeing evidence that maybe this is this PI is going to hold out on you? I mean, how what are some nuggets you can offer to junior faculty to get over that difficult conversation and make sure that you're in alignment with your mentor? Yeah, it's a good question, Kim, and it all depends on the characteristics of the mentor. As, as you know, I've given a previous talk on the characteristics of mentors, and one of them is altruism, and that is you know, looking after the other people. And when you're working in a well-functioning group, the mentor is actually looking after their, their, the junior people in the group, and she's conceiving this herself and saying, all right, well, I got these five people, each of them, I want to have a first authored publication, and therefore, you know, I'm going to divvy up some of these ideas of, of single carat diamonds. If you are in a situation where your PI or your mentor is not thinking in that way, then, you know, we go back to the first habit of highly effective people, and that is be proactive. Suggest topics. Uh, look at the literature and understand, you know, what areas of are lacking in the literature that do not foul the opus magnus of the of the PIs but still allow you to get a piece of it. The alternative way of thinking about Kim and and this has been sort of more commonly acceptable nowadays is to have multiple first authors of the opus mm-hmm. and multiple senior authors of the opus. I, I frankly, you know, as I said, as you're sculpting that 12-carat diamond, I believe that there are single two-carat pieces of publishable units that should be able to have their own say and, and be uh, able to be published on their own. However, if, if it comes down to, a, you know, this philosophical argument, then the other question is, well, how many people are, would be, be appropriate to have as first, first author and or senior author? So yeah. that would be the other the other way. Well, that's perfect. So, I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you. I'm glad you hearkened back to your other podcast. So people who are listening, you did give some really terrific tips on the mentee rules podcast. So if you're just now tuning in, uh, look through the list for the mentee rules. David Usom's mentee rules, and then he also we also recorded another great podcast with Dave going over the Thomas Kilman conflict modes. And so that was a really fun way of envisioning or understanding your conflict style and maybe your mentor's conflict style. So maybe you'll pick up some tidbits in that one, uh, Conflict Styles with Dr. David Usom, on how to negotiate people um, and get through some difficult conversations. Sorry, go ahead, Dave. Sure. So let's say you've had that conversation with your mentor and you agree that there is enough data that we can now write a paper from those data. It might be the preliminary data, it might be interobservability or reproducibility data or, you know, initial concept, etc. And you've agreed on that. So now you start, you know, writing the paper. There comes a time in the writing of the paper where you realize that you've put it together nicely and there's enough data and there's a good enough story that you're at what I call the publishable moment. So we've got the publishable unit, which is enough data to write a paper. And then we come to the point where we've been working on this paper, and we are at a point where it is now publishable. Now, 
it may still be massaged into a better paper, but you're at the point of where you reasonably can say, we've got a decent story to tell. We've got a nice intro. We've got a nice hypothesis. We've got nice aims here. We've got good data. We've got good analysis. And the discussion has come together nicely to make the point we want. You're at a publishable moment. Now, the problem uh, is that, unfortunately, many of us, even after that publishable moment, continue to milk that paper and try to make it just perfect. And we want that perfect syntax and want the perfect wording, et cetera. And my belief is that at that publishable moment, uh, you want to make the determination that anything more is going to be a delay, frankly. It's going to be delaying the publishing of that paper. None of us want to be scooped Mm -hmm. by another group because we were looking up that Latvian paper and trying to get it, you know, trying to get it translated from 1940 because it had a point about something that you wanted to discuss in the in the discussion. So when are you at the publishable moment? So again, the story is good, the data is good, the the logic is good, and again, this leads to a discussion with your senior author, um, who you proposed, are are we at the point where it's now publishable? Because in a lot of cases, you could keep going on and on and on and miss an opportunity to start writing another paper. Because in the end, you know, we want to get more and more papers out of great quality. So that's the idea of a publishable moment. And this leads into the how to overcome the quest for perfection. And I think that this is a sort of a a philosophical question, and, and that is, how many papers, if you think back, how many papers could I have written additionally were I not spending a lot of time grinding and, and redoing and wordsmithing my last paper? Mm-hmm. I think that a lot of people, when they think about it, would say, yeah, I could have been more productive. I could have written an additional paper in that five-year period of the grant had I not wasted a lot of time in just wordsmithing and wordsmithing and wordsmithing. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that, I, that also gets to the idea of this perfection piece, Kim, is that we send the paper out to our co-authors, and quite often we get variable responses from the co-authors about the exact same point in the paper or the exact same paragraph in the paper, and then you're like wondering what to do because... One person is telling you to put in the first in the present tense. Another person saying, you know, past perfect tense. Another person <laughs> present tense, and you're sort of like scratching your head, saying, you know, this really doesn't have anything to do with whether or not this is a publishable paper, and you know, it's it's sort of how it sounds. And that's the other peril, I think, of perfectionism is that when you send it out to other people, you're going to get, you know, if you have five people, you're going to get ten opinions, right? right. As we say in Academia. <laughs> so, um, again, gets back to that final discussion with your mentor, or is it ready to be submitted for publication? And um, the other thing I, I also say in my mentee rules talk is, is that whenever you send out a paper, send out a deadline for receipt of the revisions. Sometimes it's inappropriate for a junior mentee to be setting a deadline to the full professors. So a lot of times I say work with your full professor that it actually comes from the full professor 
your senior mentor who provides that deadline rather than, you know, the first year medical student, for example. But um, there always should be a deadline because otherwise, again, the time it takes to get that paper published will extend further and further out. I want to share the the experience with everybody when we first put our this talk together and you shared your slides with me and I was going to combine them in the whole deck. Well, everybody listening, this is Dave did a great job of illustrating this concept of the quest for perfection and how it can thwart your progress. Uh, and what he did was in say his like 25 or 30 slides, he made a grammatical error on every slide. And he said the slides to me and said, here are my slides, Kim, you know, um, you know, to, to combine with yours. And I opened them up and I thought, oh my gosh, there's a, there's a typo on every slide. So I was like scratching my head and I, I went and I fixed every typo and then merged them together. And then uh, Dave said, oh, and by the way, there's a typo on every slide on purpose. And I was like, Arr! so when I, I always shared that story because at the end of his slides, he always, the last slide says, now there was a typo. And I mean, of course, like one or two or three slides in, everybody in the audience starts looking like, wait a minute, this, this is one thing to be a perfectionist. It's another thing to be sloppy. But the point that he makes so elegantly is on his last slide. He says, now, there was a typo on every slide on purpose. And guess what? It was still a good talk, right? You still learned something, you got the point. And the point that you make so well with such humor is that, no, of course, we're not going to purposely put typos in our, in our manuscripts. But the point is, is that we're oftentimes, we understand each other. The whole point of scholarship is to be understood and to communicate a message. As you said, don't worry about being Shakespeare. It doesn't have to be perfect prose. We are scientists. We're trying to communicate. And oftentimes the best way to communicate is just to be clear and simple and concise rather than making sure things are lofty, beautiful prose. So I just love the way you do that, Dave. Hey, hey Kim, have you ever had a paper that was accepted as is? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Never. I always say in my WAG talks, I don't think in the history of academia there's ever been a, a situation where a, a first author says, gets a, or an email back from the journal saying, Dear Dr. Yusum, we are in receipt of your latest you know, submission. We love it. We're going to publish it in the next issue. Keep them coming. Love the journal. <laughs> Just doesn't happen. <laughs> Right, right. I, I also say I, I want to, you know, I want to keep editors, you know, still job employed. security. <laughs> Have job security, and that's why I mean sometimes I'll use the term the, the the paper is editorable. You know, in other words, it's not perfect. There's probably some syntax area uh, error or a little bit of a sloppy part, but with the professional editors and the professional copy editors, this is okay. we are at a where this paper can be published and it's editorable. You're so exactly right. that's another concept I, I throw out there. I love that. My And uh, we just, in my uh, AAMC, the Association of American Medical Colleges, Group on Faculty Affairs, we the culmination of this two, three-year-long project where we surveyed the, the nation on late career faculty members, we worked so hard on two 
peer publications that appeared just recently in Academic Medicine. But I'll tell you what, Dave, you're exactly right. Those editors at Academic Medicine or Editor uh, got a hold of these papers and at, I, I'd finally, at one point, I just kind of threw both my hands up in the air. I'm like, whatever. I don't know what's going on here. They made so many changes, and I got so many proofs back and so many iterations that I thought, for crying out loud, why don't y'all write the paper? It was so, I mean, I, I was just stunned. I've never had a paper edited so much. And I thought, is this just that? Because I've never gotten in academic medicine before. But it, you know, you're right. Here I'm thinking, we angsted over this paragraph or this transition. And then you get an editor and they go, nope, this, this, that, slash, burn, you know, rewrite. And so, yeah, at some point you have to have this come to Jesus meeting with yourself. What is the whole point of this article? It's to communicate this. I want the audience to know that this does that or this does not do that. We should go here and do this. So you say it simply and another colleague friend of mine said, you know what, people aren't even read people stopped reading journals a long time ago. I mean journals like front to back. And even you're hard pressed sometimes to find people who admit to reading full articles. You know, we're scanning abstracts and posting, you know, graphs and figures and charts in in Instagram or tweeting them out. So we have to really be very clear and concise in our communication. And that's if you're a perfectionist, this is even more, you know, important that you just have to resign yourself to the way people take in information these days and just get it out. Exactly. And if I can go back to my analogy of the diamond, uh, how many of us have perfect diamonds, right? Even mm. in some cases, the flaw actually makes it a more attractive diamond in a way. Yeah. So there you go. There's the analogy. Love but make sure, it. Kim. <laughs> but make sure what? Make sure it's a diamond. Right, right, and not the cubic zirconia. This isn't a diamond at all. <laughs> I love it. All right, friends. Well, there you go. That's um, Dr. Dave Usum's tips and gems on overcoming the quest for perfection and making sure you understand the um, important concepts of being at a publishable unit and the publishable moment. Thanks a lot, Dave. Thank you, Kim. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.